We're continuing our, our time of uh, preaching through the book of the Gospel of John, and we find ourselves in chapter 7 today. And so I would invite you to uh, open your Bible and look along and follow as I read John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. John chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he is good. Others said no. On the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. We begin with the words, after these things, and that gives us a chance to think about the context. We've seen our Lord's ministry that John has unfolded. He begins by telling us Jesus is God in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his ministry and the introductions of him by John the Baptist and his early miracle of the miracle of Cana, his encounter with Nicodemus, his encounter with the Samaritan woman. In chapter uh, 6, we saw uh, a two-day affair, if you will. In chapter 6, we saw him uh, feeding the 5,000. Again, we always like to clarify, it said 5,000 men, not counting the men and the women, or the women and children. So he fed 15,000, 20,000 with five loaves and a few fish. After that, the, the people were excited and thought, this is wonderful, we could have a king, a messiah, who would meet all our needs. We would, he, he could provide food and we wouldn't have to work for it. So they were going to force him to be king. And remember he uh, sent his disciples off. He walked to, on the water to meet them. When they landed on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the crowds gathered and he, as he did when he arrived, he, he banished illness. Every illness and every disease was, was cured. And then the, the scene moved over to the, the synagogue in Capernaum. And there he preached the powerful message and focused on himself as the bread of life. And he used those words, if, if someone won't eat of my flesh and drink my blood, they will not have life. But if they do eat, they will have life eternal and be, and be part of the resurrection. Of course, he wasn't saying to eat his flesh and blood, but using that as a picture, receive me into your life. That huge chapter, and we spent several weeks on it, was uh, two days. And then we see this phrase, after these things. Now, if, if you and I are talking like that, we might think, okay, well, that's the next day, maybe a couple days later. Between chapter 6, uh, verse 71, and chapter 7, verse 1, is a six-month gap. 
John just skips over six months of ministry. Remember, he told us at the end of the book, uh, he did many things that uh, he's not recording. Well, there's six months of ministry in Galilee that are skipped over. Um, if you wanted to catch up on that, you could read Matthew 15 through 18 and see some of the, the, the events that happen. What that's telling us is John has a purpose and a focus in his writing. That's a sign of, a, if you will, a good storyteller. They know the important details and what they want to leave out because they're driving toward a point. And, and, and so John, more than anyone else, focused on the ministry in Judea, in Jerusalem. That's, that's where it all happens. In fact, if you look at the Gospel of John, half of it is in the last week of Jesus uh, in Jerusalem. Starting in chapter 7, we're coming to the last uh, six months of Jesus' ministry before the cross. So we, we skipped six months, and now we're entering into a, a new phase as in with the after he's things. Now, how do I know it's six months? Well, back in chapter 6, verse 4, we were told, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. That was chapter 6 with the feeding of the 5,000, the, and then the next day, the preaching in Capernaum. But in verse 2 of chapter 7, now the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. Uh, Passover is around our time of Easter. Think March, April. Usually more March. Uh, tabernacles, that's the first of the seven. The, the Jews had seven uh, feasts, festivals they celebrated. Passover started the process. The first of the seven in the early spring. It was a spring harvest time. Tabernacles, or sometimes it's called tabernacles or booths, or the Jews call it Sukkot, which is the Hebrew word for multiple, for booths. That was the last of the seven feasts. It happened in usually October, around the fall harvest. And so in between, six months. Again, we, a six-month gap here. And, what, what did, and all he tells us during that time is that Jesus walked in Galilee for six months. And that word walked has the idea of walking about. In other words, he, he didn't stay in one place, but he wandered. And if you read the other Gospels, he went up into uh, Phoenicia a little bit. He went to some other regions. But he, he, he kind of just went from village to village preaching uh, his message for six months. Now, now, why did he stay in Galilee? We're told that as well. We're told that he was there because the, he stayed in Galilee because the Jews sought to kill him. And when you see the word Jews in John, usually it means the Jewish leaders. In other words, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees already had in their mind to kill him. And frankly, Jesus was not afraid of that. In fact, he knows that's why he came. But it wasn't time yet for him to die. And so he stayed in Galilee and avoided the conflicts that would come. Uh, there's wisdom in that. Sometimes we see um, persecution of believers and martyrdom when they give their life. And in, in history, sometimes there have been those that kind of made a point of putting themselves in the way of martyrdom. Well, you see Paul leaving places sometimes rather than suffer persecution. And you see Jesus waiting on the Lord's timing. Now, he didn't go to Jerusalem and say, well, we'll see what happens. It wasn't his time. And so he took that time of opposition to, to minister in Galilee. Well, verses 3 to 9 tell us of a further encounter. 
We're told uh, in verse uh, 3 and 4 and 5, his brothers said to him, depart from here. Go into Judea that your disciples may see the works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Uh, I should fill in here. Now, who are these brothers of Jesus? And of course, Jesus was uh, born of a virgin. And the firstborn, he's called in the scripture. But he did have other brothers and sisters. And if you like to take notes, Mark 6.3 would be a passage that's especially helpful because we're actually told their names, or at least the brothers. Speaking of Jesus in Mark 6.3, he said, Is this not the carpenter? So we know that he took on the trade of his father. The son of Mary. But his father's not named, and so that suggests to us already Joseph has died. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us as well? We're not told their names. Now, it appears, and we're told here in, in, in John 7, his brothers did not believe in him. Again, I'm, I'm stunned by that in some ways. They had lived with him for, and, and grown up with him. They'd seen him for 30 years. They'd watched his life. They'd seen his, his, his heart. They'd heard him preach. They were aware of his miracles. But they didn't believe. It appears they didn't come to faith until after the resurrection. We're told about James, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. After that, after Jesus appeared to others, he was seen by James, his brother, and then to the apostles. So unbelieving James, who after all that time of unbelief, can you imagine after the horror of the crucifixion of his brother, then encountered his brother resurrected from the dead? And maybe he quoted what Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Over when James writes the gospel or the book of James, what does he say? I'm, I'm just a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm just, you know, he doesn't say like we would today. He would have come to faith and then he would have gone on the, uh, on, on the circuit of speaking and being on television, talking about what it was like growing up as a brother of Jesus. He just says, I'm just a, I'm just a servant of Jesus. Uh, Jude also, Judas um, is named here. And for some reason, he preferred the name Jude to Judas. Uh, I can imagine why. Uh, Judas was a very popular, I mean, that that's just basically means Judah, the tribe of Judah. Um, but there's a, Judas Iscariot kind of hurt that name. So the brother, another brother is Jude. So we see James coming to faith and the resurrection. Apparently similar things must have happened or somehow influenced in Acts chapter 114, we find mention to the brothers these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. So by Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection, in, the, in, the, uh, in that period of his appearances, we're not told anything about his sisters, I don't know, but apparently his brothers trusted Christ and trusted in him as Savior. But not yet. I, I just wanted to give you some background. We're told their names, we're told he had brothers and sisters, they, but at this point, they were unbelievers. And, and the festival upon them is the festival of booths or tabernacles or Sukkot. All mean the same thing. There was one of three festivals. There were seven festivals 
uh, that they, they celebrated in, in, in the calendar year. But three required the men of Israel to come to Jerusalem and worship in the temple. Now we see that in Deuteronomy 16, 16. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's Passover and Unleavened Bread. At the Feast of Weeks, that's Pentecost. And at the Feast of Tabernacles. So this is one of those, it was mandatory. If you were, could get to Jerusalem, the men of Israel had to go and worship. And what that meant is a couple of things. That meant it was mandatory, but, but notice what the brothers are saying to him. You're putting yourself out there as the Messiah. You, you say you're going to be the Savior. If you're going to be the Savior of the world and King of the nation, don't you think you should make this public? And what better place? The nation is gathering in Jerusalem. Apparently this was the most celebratory of, of, all, of the, uh, all of the festivals. It's called the Festival of Booths or Tabernacles uh, because... For a week, you had, to, you had to live in a tabernacle, a booth. All the Jews would, would build little shelters and live in them. Some have called it the Feast of Camping. Um, but this was to remind them of their 40 years in the wilderness where they lived in tents. And so they had to build little shelters. On Wednesday night, uh, Lord willing, I'll, I'll show you some pictures of, of even in modern cities. For example, in New York, in some of the neighborhoods that have a high Jewish population... You'll see in these apartments that their, their balconies have a booth built over it. And so you, they had to sleep in the booth for a week and camp out. And, and, uh, so, but it was a time of celebration. It was a time of great joy. And it was a time of national gathering. Again, it was reminding how God provided for their needs. We'll talk later, uh, not today, but as we continue in John 7, uh, the idea of water was important in the wilderness, how God provided miraculously. And so water will be a part of the, the ceremonies of, ta- of tabernacles. But the point that the brothers are saying is, look, you've been at this for two and a half years, preaching in these little villages. You know, that'd be like maybe around here saying, okay, so what are you doing? You're on a preaching circuit to uh, Terrell and Elmo and Will's Point um, if, you're, if you're going to be the governor of, of Texas, don't you think you should go to Dallas and Houston? And so what they're saying here is, hey, everybody, everybody's going to be in Jerusalem. And of course, I think they probably assume too, you're a faithful Jew. You're supposed to go to the festival. Here's your opportunity. Go. So they're, they're arguing from common sense, and it makes sense. If you want to, to gather a, a following, you go to where the people are, and you make your case. What they don't understand is, is he's, yes, he's presenting himself as king. But the, the way to, become, to, to, to bring in the kingdom is not through a political rally. The way to bring in the kingdom is how John the Baptist did. He called every individual to repent. Prepare the way for the king. How? Repent. Put your trust in him. And so Jesus has been out preparing the way for the kingdom, individual by individual. He's not 
trying to start a political movement. He's trying to bring the nation to heart preparedness. But even his own brothers didn't believe in him. So that tells us the advice they're giving him, for one thing, is, is worldly wisdom. And by the way, it's something we all fall into the trap. I'm going to confess a sin on your behalf, because I know you do this. I have never done this. But there are those who feel that prayer time is a time to give God guidance and wisdom and advice. God, let me tell you how you can fix this situation. And so husbands will pray for all the things in the wife that need to get fixed. Not to be outdone as the wife praying for the husband all the things that he, God could fix in him. And, and then they both pray for the kids and the kids pray. But, but we're going to give God advice on how are you going to make things right. That's what the brothers are doing. Hey, you want to be Messiah, we can give you some advice. By the way, if you find yourself giving advice to God, may I give you a one word suggestion? Stop. Yes, pour your requests, pour your needs, pour, cast your cares. But trust his wisdom. These are unbelievers trying to give counsel to the Lord God and Savior. And right there, there's a clue something's not right. But also, what are they doing? It's told, but they didn't believe in him. So you know what that, I think how we're supposed to read this? I think we're supposed to read it with, with this hint of mockery. You're king of the Jews? All right, your majesty. Why did not you go to Jerusalem and gather your nation? Kind of reminds me, this whole thing of them giving them counsel and, and mockery reminds me of the temptation by Satan. Remember, he said, you want to be king? I've got a deal for you. Real simple. You don't have to do this cross thing. Just worship me. And I'll make the nations bow before you. And so here are these unbelieving brothers. They're, they're, they're mocking him. They don't think he is the king. Oh, you, why don't you go talk to your followers in Jerusalem? Jesus is God in the flesh. But, he, but with that, he has humanity. And I have to think in the humanity, there would be a sting to those words. To be mocked by his own family that have known him for these 30 years. To be rejected by them. So even if they were well-intentioned, the best of advice we ever receive needs to be tested by God's word. Worldly methods to gain attention and grow crowds are not God's way. And, and, I, and, and you're not really the ones that need to hear that, but, but if you look at the world around us today, if you look at so much of the evangelical church today, so much of it listens to Jesus' brothers. Put on a show. Gather the crowds. That's how you do God's work. When Jesus is saying, it's one heart at a time. And faithfully trusting God's way and God's timing.
Well, Jesus responds to them in verses uh, 6 to 9. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. Your time is already here. It's always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I'm not yet going, I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. Notice, he does not deny his claim to be the Messiah. He just says, it isn't God's time yet. You know, he doesn't say, what are you talking about gathering the, the nation to me? He just says, not yet. Not yet. And then he tells them, the world hates me, but it doesn't hate you because you're part of the world. Again, that must have hurt him to tell his own brothers. You're part of that world system that hates, rejects, and rebels against me and God. You're part of the world. You're not with me. That's a reminder to us. These brothers that he's talking to were raised by two godly parents, Joseph and Mary. We see their godliness in the, in the Gospels. We see their great faith. You look at Mary in particular, her, how she you know, submits herself before the Lord. We see Joseph when you know, he was a righteous man, we're told. We're told when the angel appeared to him in a dream, he did exactly what he was told. He was a faithful God follower. As was Mary. Jesus, the firstborn, was a godly son from the beginning. He was without sin. So here's my point. Those four other brothers and the sisters, they had the best family environment you could be born into. Godly parents, sinners, but saved by grace through faith and and with a heart for the Lord. A brother who was a perfect example. My brothers nearly had that advantage. <laughs> I can only say that because they're not here. <laughs> but, but the point is, and here's what I want to make a point. 30 years old, well that's about the age of Jesus, so they're between 20 and 30, these four brothers. After decades of being raised in a, perfectly, in, in a godly home, in a devoted home, faithfully worshiping every week, faithfully tending to the scriptures, were still unbelievers and a part of that world system that rejects God. That's a good reminder for us as parents that we can, be the, we can seek to be as godly as, as possible in, in, in our own lives and in our nurture of our children, but it's God that needs to work in the heart. And a good reminder to each of us, you, you may have been raised in a Christian home. You may have gone to church all your life and even held positions in the church. It's not the ones we're around that make us followers of Jesus. What did Jesus say back in the previous chapter? You must eat of me. In other words, it's not enough to sit next to a loaf of bread. You have to eat it. You have to bring it into yourself to get the nutritional benefit. And so it's not enough to be around 
the, the, the teaching and the words and the heart and, and a spirit of devotion to Christ. You must each every one receive him as Savior. And these his brothers hadn't done that yet by God's grace. And we'll see, as I've already quoted, they will come to faith later on. But even at this point in their life, unbelievers. And so what a reminder to us, it's not enough to be raised in a Christian home. Parents, remember that as you're nurturing those children. Share Christ with them. Point them to the need of a personal trust and a personal faith. And a warning to us too. Just because we were raised in a Christian home, no, I was not or raised in a Christian nation, and we are not, <laughs> that does not make you a Christian. You know, the old expression, just because uh, I'm in the garage, that doesn't make me a car. Or as Corey Ten Boom's father, I think, used to say, uh, just because the mouse is in the cookie jar doesn't make it a cookie. Just because you're in church or in a Christian home doesn't make you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And these brothers are an important reminder to us of that truth. Notice what he says, you're part of the world that hates me. And he says to them, it hates me. Why did the world hate Jesus? Because I testify of it that its works are evil. That is so true of the world for the following 2,000 years as well and into our time. Have you noticed, I've noticed over the years of my life, a growing animosity, an outspoken animosity towards Christianity. But you know, you know what I, when I see the criticisms in the, in the, on the web or in the news or whatever, I don't hear them arguing about the issue of the Trinity. I don't hear them, you know, questioning the deity of Christ and attacking us on that level nearly as much. In other words, what I'm saying is it's not a theological issue. They look at those who follow Christ and say, we hate you, to use Jesus' words, because you testify that our works are evil. Have you heard how Christians are being called haters and full of hate speech? What is, what is it they normally point to? The biblical teachings on moral values. What was true of Jesus 2,000 years ago is true today. It hates me. The world hates us because I, the Lord and we testify its works are evil. And the examples we could give are plenteous. I, I mentioned that one, a while back the, uh, in Finland a member of parliament who is being charged with hate crime because she took a picture of the Bible passage that speaks of homosexuality and posted it on her Facebook page. And so she was charged with the crime of, of hate speech. She, the, she got through that with the courts. She didn't, she, they didn't, uh, the, the, the charges didn't stick. But just there's a good example. That, that, you know, that they, she went to trial for that. In Canada... And we've talked about this before, that um, you have broadcasters in America sometimes have different messages that they broadcast into Canada because 
Uh, if, you, if you address the moral issues that are laid out in the scripture, uh, that's a crime and it's forbidden in the radio broadcasting of Canada. But, but in other words, it's not an issue of, well, if you teach the Trinity, if you teach eschatology, if you teach some doctrine issues, we're going to stop you. No. The, the way that we are attacked is on the basis of following Christ and his moral teachings. And here's a reminder to us. The answer is not to soft pedal, dilute, or deny the moral teachings of Scripture. Jesus acknowledges they hate me because of it, and he doesn't say, so I'm going to stop doing that because I want to be popular. Rather, he says, I'm preaching the truth. And they hate me for it, and therefore, I will continue to preach the truth. And it grieves me deeply to see in so many an evangelical setting uh, an exactly of that. It's, it's let's be sensitive. Let's, be, let's not address these issues. Let's not be confrontational. Jesus doesn't take that approach. And so the challenge before us is, do we want to follow the example of Jesus or listen to the counsel of his brothers? I hope you know the right answer to that one. But I'm stunned because I've been noticing for years, interesting why they attack Christianity today. Silly me. That's a 2,000-year-old story. And that should give us some comfort. In fact, it might even say, if they're not criticizing us because of our moral teaching, are we not being clear enough? Well, Jesus told his brothers... You go, up to the, you go up to the feast. I'm not yet going to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. Notice how he understands the Lord has appointed times. He had the advantage. He knew the calendar. He knew the plan. And sometimes in our prayer, we might even say, Lord, couldn't you just... Let, just make it clear for the next six months what I'm supposed to be doing. It's not that clear for us. But the reminder is clear. God has a schedule. We can trust him and yield to his timing. And the way we yield is being faithful day by day, moment by moment. And trust he has a plan. Psalm 31:15. My times are in your hand. In other words, we are yielding and trusting God. You have my times. My task is to be faithful to you. And you, in your time, will address these concerns, will guide me as I'm needing. You're the shepherd. You know when it's time to leave this pasture and move to the next. My time are in your hands. And so Jesus is saying that to the Father. It's not my time yet. As I said, in six months, it will be his time. Well, verses 10 to 13 we see the opposition in Jerusalem in verse 10. When his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. So it was one of those required feasts. Jesus did go, but he just didn't want to make it a, a public display of his entering into town. He will do that later. Think of Palm Sunday. He made a public display of entering into Jerusalem, but now's not the time. Now's not the time. 
And so when he went secretly, that suggests to me, you know, remember the whole nation, and they had the, you know, the, the songs of ascent, the pilgrim songs they sang. It, it was the big gathering. Remember when they left, when Jesus was, was uh, left behind in Jerusalem? Um, and because Joseph thought he was with Mary, Mary thought he was with Joseph. And again, there's that horrific discovery. We lost the Messiah. What do we do? But, but the point is, there were these mass caravans. The whole nation was on the roads. So Jesus took a less common road. I think he went straight, through, well, he went through Samaria. And that's where Luke tells us about that. In chapter 9, 51 to 56, I won't read all that. Came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers before his face. They went and entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare him. Remember, he'd already been to Samaria. Well received. So now he's saying, hey, we're coming back. But they did not receive him because his, fate was set, his face was set towards Jerusalem. Last time he was leaving Jerusalem, now they realize he's going to celebrate the feast in Jerusalem. And so he met Jewish opposition. Do you remember what happens? There's a great scene. The disciples James and John come to him and say, Shall we call down fire like Elijah did and burn up Samaria? And that's when Jesus says, Okay, you're sons of thunder. This is, this, is, this is not how we do it, boys. And this is two and a half years into ministry. You don't go roasting every town that says no. Um, but, but, so, but, but he was going through, he was going through Samaria because no one else was taking that route because they would have been treated like this. Because he didn't want to make a public appearance at this time. It wasn't the Lord's time. Verses 11 and 12, then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? They expected him. It was the festival. And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he's good. Others, on the contrary, he deceives the people. So, so everybody's looking. They expect him. It's the, it's the festival. It's a mandatory festival. Surely he's going to be here somewhere. And so they're hoping to see the show. Remember when Nicodemus, John 3, he said, no one could do the signs you do unless he's from God. So they were looking to see the miracles. They've been hearing about them. Maybe they've seen some of them. Everybody's looking for him. But we're told they were uh, complaining is my translation. That's not really the best word. That's that word we mentioned before. It's, it's ganguzman. It's, 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 it's murmuring. In other words, uh, everywhere you went in the cafes or whatever else it may, would be, people are kind of quietly talking. What do you think? Is he coming? Is he here? What's going to happen? There's a lot of discussion. Every, every, he was in every mouth and every thought. Everybody was looking. Where is he? What's he doing? What's the plan? Because they expected a national festival. Surely this is it. But it were told, but no one spoke openly for fear of the Jews. Um, that's why they're being so quiet about it. It kind of reminds me of what it's like to live in a repressive state. And, a play, and, and when, you know, whether it be under Stalin or, or Hitler or Mao or others... If you have these conversations, you're careful who's around. And you're kind of quiet, but there was this quiet undertone of, what about Jesus? And some were saying he was good, others knowing he's a deceiver. I imagine if someone had been healed of leprosy, they would probably say, I personally think Jesus is pretty good. <laughs> uh, and others were saying, oh, I think it's, and they were saying it's, it's witchcraft, it's demonism. It's, so, so there was a lot of division in Jerusalem. This whole section of scripture, though, is filled with hostility. Chapter 
Six closed, remember, with many of the, most of the disciples, most of those who've been listening to him, leaving because his, his teaching was too hard to hear. Not that they didn't understand it. They did, no, that's, no we, can't go, we can't abide that. And we see his brothers hostile to him, mocking him. Maybe even setting him up for, for problems in Jerusalem. We see the crowds, some uh, calling him a deceiver. And we see the Jewish leaders, the Jews, it's, he calls them, wanting to kill him. So from Capernaum to Jerusalem, our Lord Jesus Christ is facing constant hostility and opposition. How did he respond? He wasn't discouraged. He expected it. He didn't quit because he faced opposition. He didn't change his methods or his message to please the crowds. He stayed the course. And so uh, the question that we have to ask is, that's 2,000 years ago. Jesus told his disciples, they're going to hate you because they hated me. Now, Jesus is hard to hate because he's perfect. Frankly, we give people reason to be troubled with us just because of who we are let alone what we say of Christ. But this passage reminds us the great majority rejected Jesus and were hostile to him. If we're faithfully following Christ, what can we expect? If our desire is to win man's approval and praise, then we're not walking the path of Jesus Christ. If we're faithfully following him, expect rejection. And it's hard for me to say it, but notice Jesus' rejection even was in his own home, his own hometown. If we're faithful in following Christ, we can expect the same. And again, I just want to say Jesus' message was offensive because he took a moral stand. They knew his stand. They rejected it. May we likewise be faithful to preach God's word unapologetically, clearly, without compromise. And may we not follow the way of the world. A little word of encouragement. James was told here, he's one of the brothers, you're part of the world. You're worldly. You're in opposition to me. Well, he, came to, he saw the resurrected Christ. He was one of the brothers who met with Jesus after the resurrection. And I like what he says in James chapter 4, verse 4. This is James. In our chapter, we see Jesus telling him, you're part of the world. You're part of the problem. James 4, 4, Jesus, James says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That's where he was. He can say that because he says, I've been there. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And he's thinking of himself and his attitude towards Jesus through much of his life. As we see our Lord's example, as we see, may I say, the loneliness of faithfulness. As we see his perseverance in the face of opposition, 
May God give us the courage and the conviction to stand our ground in a hostile, hostile and unbelieving culture. And again, I want to say, if you have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have yet to feast on him, personally embrace him as Savior, then hear a message from James and the others. It's not enough to be a part of a family, to be a part of a church, to be a part of a group that follows Jesus. You need to follow Jesus personally. And if you have yet to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, I urge you even today to to flee to him, turn from your sin, receive his forgiveness, trust him as Savior and follow him. And if you need help in understanding that, we'd be more than happy to talk to you about that. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who's such a faithful example before us, of course, God in the flesh. And yet, Father, he's called us to walk in his footsteps. And so I pray you grant us the grace that we might be found faithful, that we might have wisdom and courage to walk where you would have us to walk and the way you'd have us to walk. Lord, if any here have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, open their eyes to see. Grant them the, the, the grace to believe. And Father, for those of us, your children, grant us the grace and courage to be found faithfully following our Savior. I pray this in Jesus' name.